the churches. We have come now to the fourth letter, the letter to the angel or messenger of the church in Thyatira. And uh, as you remember, one of the um, interesting things about these letters is that they appear to be um, a chronological record of the history of uh, we'll say the church, but really we mean Christendom through the ages uh, from its inception that the church began in the day of Pentecost and uh, through to the rapture. We looked uh, first at the book of Ephesus, which was a picture of the apostolic church, the first century. Uh, then the church at Smyrna, the persecuted church, which took us pretty much from about 100 A.D. to about 300 A.D., and uh, we read a little bit about that last week, the terrible persecutions under uh, the various Roman emperors. You remember at one point, um, the emperor had decreed that to be a good citizen, you had to carry around with you a little uh, piece of paper that had uh, certified that you had worshipped the idols, offered uh, sacrifices to them sometime within the last year. And if you didn't have one of those, then the penalty was death. Imagine being a believer at that time in the Lord Jesus Christ and being stopped on the street and asked for your little receipt. And then, uh, as we said, Satan uh, tried his best to hit the church from the outside through persecution and all it uh, seemed to do was strengthen the church. And so it seemed his new tactic, which uh, was great, more greatly successful, was to attack the church from within. And uh, in, in around 300 A.D., Constantine, the Roman emperor, uh, had his famous vision of the cross in the sky and supposedly the words in Latin in this sign, conquer. He, uh, before that moment, was about to lose a great battle but uh, took confidence from the sign and went out and won the battle and became friendly to the church. And of course, if you read any liberal history of the church, they say, oh, well, this was the triumph of Christianity. And nothing could be further from the truth because it really led uh, ultimately to the marriage of the church and the state. And uh, it became so bad that uh, not long after Constantine, his, his uh, uh, successors first made it law that uh, you were a Christian. Isn't that good? You know how you become a Christian? Just pass a law. Uh, and then a, a few um, rulers later, it became illegal not to be a Christian. There's a difference there. In fact, uh, there was a severe penalty for being a non-Christian. Really, probably one, in the history of the church, and when I say that, I mean Christendom now. These are, we're talking about people who say they're Christians. That's Christendom. The church itself, uh, at any given age, the, tr the church, true believers, in the midst of all those who say they are believers, is always a small group. Probably smaller during the con uh, time of Constantine than it was during the persecutions, as we said. During the persecutions, it wasn't healthy to say you were a Christian and, and uh, really not be one. So that brings us uh, historically to the next uh, age, which is really the rise of the, uh, the Roman church, which really didn't happen until about uh, 600 A.D. We'll look at that in a minute. But uh, before we get into the historical aspect of the letter, uh, in, in the overview of the course of the history of, the, of Christendom, let's look at the, the local application to the actual church that existed in Thyatira, at that time. So we'll begin reading in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. And to the angel or messenger of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Hard to believe this is written to a church, isn't it? And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according 
to your works. But to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, and who have not known the depths of Satan, as they call them, I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the potter's vessels shall be broken to pieces, as I also have received from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thyatira. It's pretty much descended to a mere village today. It wasn't even a big city in those days. Um, Whereas in the case of Ephesus, we know about it through the, the letter to the Ephesians. There's no such letter in the New Testament to Thyatira, but we do know about Thyatira in one small reference. It might have rung a bell when we read that. If you remember Lydia, the seller of purple, in uh, the book of Acts, whom Paul met in Philippi. Uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm seeing a few uh, signs of recognition in faces here. Anyway, Lydia was from Thyatira. And we don't know the history, of course, of the church, but it's, it's quite possible. Uh, you know, she got saved through the preaching of Paul. She may well have gone back, and it may have been through her testimony that uh, this church uh, first came into being. But uh, it's quite a bit later now. As we said, this is near the, the turn of the first century, uh, about 95 A.D. And uh, as you saw, things have really gone downhill at this church. Uh, again, we have the, the formula of, of the letter following the, the progression we've seen in the other three. First, uh, the address to the church, and then the Lord Jesus introduces himself in a particular way. Here he is the one who is the Son of God who has, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Very appropriate to this church. Um, the eyes of flame of fire really fits well with what he talks about later. You notice in verse 23, I am he who searches the minds and hearts. Eyes of a flame. He's talking about that, that penetrating gaze where he can look inside the heart. He gets beyond the surface. We can't do that. I look out on a sea of generally happy faces, some yawning, uh, generally well-dressed individuals. I just see the outside. I can't see what's going on in your heart. Wouldn't that be interesting? <laughs> But I can't, and you can't. Can you see a thought? Can you see a motive? You know, all we can see is the outside. Imagine the Lord Jesus looks inside. And, it's, and, and the word he uses, it says he searches. It's not the idea that he just kind of, you know, he can, he can see just barely from the outside. It's like he sees inside and looks all around from me. He searches. He weighs the intents and thoughts of the heart. Imagine that. Makes him a good judge, doesn't it? Yeah. He searches the heart. Appropriate. Because, of course, uh, it's a picture of, of, a, of judgment because it goes on to say that he's the one with feet like fine brass. Brass, a picture of uh, judgment in the Scripture. And uh, later, of course, of those feet, it's said in the book of Revelation that the Lord Jesus is the one who, who treads out the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. So he introduces himself really as the, as the perfect uh, penetrating judge. And it, he actually has a commendation uh, for this church. It's hard to believe these two things going on concurrently, isn't it? In one church, he says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last one of the first. Boy, that shows you what a, uh, a righteous judge he is. He doesn't overlook that there, are, there is a remnant. There are believers that this church in Thyatira who are faithful in serving him. And he doesn't just lump the whole uh, group together, you know, and condemn the lot. But he, he recognizes the service for him and he singles it out for mention. A perfect judge. Nevertheless, he says, after the uh, commendation, uh, next, uh, as it typically comes in the letters, if there is one, is a rebuke, and certainly there's one in this case. He says, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, 
Uh, we saw last week, remember who it was uh, from the Old Testament that he uses a picture of the, the heresy in the church, who was it? Balaam, yes. Balaam from the book of Numbers. We looked back at that. Uh, Jezebel is in 1 Kings. She is the wife of whom? Ahab, yes. Was Ahab a good king? No. You could probably figure that if you married a woman like this, huh? In fact, it was pretty much dominated by Jezebel, if you remember. Uh, probably the most pathetic scene in, in that whole episode of, of their marriage and, and his supposed rule, actually her rule through him, was when, you remember, uh, Ahab wanted the, uh, the vineyard of Naboth and uh, went and looked at it and he tried to reason with him and said, look, uh, do what you want. I'll give you whatever choice you want. You know, um, I'll give you any sum of money you want. Just, I want your vineyard. And the dear godly man said, I can't give you the inheritance of my fathers. You know, this came to me from the Lord through my ancestors. I can't give it up. Well, Ahab, you know what he did? He pouted. Went home and laid on his bed and put his face to the wall. <laughs> and uh, just to show you the contrasting characters, Jezebel came in and found him that way, asked him why he was so glum. And he told her, she basically rebuked him, said, aren't you king of Israel? You know, basically just take it. And she went out and got it for him, as you know, by having... Uh, Godly Naboth killed and uh, gave the vineyard to her husband Ahab. More importantly, as it says here, she led the nation of Israel into the worship of Baal. Um, in fact, her, her father's name has the word Baal in it. And uh, she was the one, that you remember, that uh, chased poor Elijah. She threatened to, uh, to uh, do more to Elijah, to, to Elijah than he'd done uh, to the nation. And uh, Elijah, you know, ran and, and hid because of his fear of Jezebel. And as well, uh, a leader in sexual immorality at that time. So, God uses that Old Testament personage to um, illustrate whoever it is, there, there certainly must have been a real woman at the church at Thyatira doing these things. And God, as he did in the case of Balaam, dipped back in the Old Testament and pulled out a corresponding character to give her... Uh, uh, an appropriate name. In this case, it's Jezebel. And uh, it's terrible what's going on in the, ch in the church. It, it's interesting, there's a progression, as you, as you notice, we've been going through these. Um, at Ephesus, they tested the doctrine, as you remember, and they rejected it. Bad doctrine was kept outside the church. By the time of uh, Pergamos, the one we looked at last week, it was inside the church. The doctrine was, they said they had the doctrine of Belaim. Remember that. And here now we have all the accompanying behavior with it as well. Um, it's, it's the church, it looks like it's hit, hit rock bottom. Uh, 22 through 23, the Lord Jesus warns of judgment. But before that, there's an interesting verse. He says, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Isn't that interesting? Jesus said, I gave her time. It's incredible. When you understand what's going on here, when you see the patience of God, I gave her time to repent. And as I read that, I thought of uh, Romans 2. Let's look back there just quickly. You wonder what Jezebel did during all that time. It's like the Lord Jesus was watching her, searching her and her followers with that uh, penetrating gaze, waiting to see a change of heart, a change of action associated with it. And during all that time, she was totally oblivious to it. And is, there's really a, a general principle here in the, in the patience of God. He says uh, in uh, Romans 2, Verse 3, And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, long su you might say long-suffering in your translation, or patience, but it's the same idea as in the book of Revelation, and long-suffering, same idea, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Maybe you don't know the Lord Jesus uh, here this morning. And you've been waiting. You've been putting it off. Let me tell you that um, 
even though God is not verbally speaking to you or you don't see a thunderbolt uh, coming out of heaven and striking you when you sin, He is waiting for you. Just as He was waiting for Jezebel, just as He was waiting here, waiting for you to repent. He's giving you time. He gave Jezebel time. But the time doesn't last forever. And uh, if you think you're guaranteed to live till 70, 80, or 90, there's no such guarantee. You don't know how much time you have. And the Bible plainly teaches that during this silence, as you see it, where you're putting off Jesus and you're waiting and you're waiting, He's waiting for you, but He won't wait forever. And He goes on to say here in Romans 2, uh, what's really going on, He says, if, if you don't repent, He says, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent or unrepentant heart, you are treasuring up or literally storing up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Take heed from these passages here in Romans and in uh, Revelation. Okay, back to Revelation. He says, I gave her time to repent, but the time for waiting is past because she did not repent. And so the time of judgment has come. He enumerates the judgment, very similar, interestingly enough, to the judgment of Jezebel in the book of uh, 1 Kings. And uh, reminds us again of the way he's the one who searches the hearts. Then uh, he, again, he recalls the, the uh, remnant there in Thyatira, the faithful believers. Says, but to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, and listen to this, and who have not known the depths of Satan. Boy, that's a chilling phrase, isn't it? The depths of Satan. You know, people talk about the, the deeper things of God. Imagine, what are the depths of Satan? It's, it's like, uh, you know, knowing the deeper things, the, the uh, hidden mysteries of uh, the devil and his ways. And, uh, incredible how far this uh, false teaching and practice had gone. The depths of Satan as they called them. This was a phrase they used to describe. It, it, it must have been a, a note of pride, you know, to have gone into the depths of Satan. I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast, there's the command, what you have till I come. You find this command twice in the seven letters. He says it later. Hold fast till I come. He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, and he gives the promise of ruling with him. Okay, well, uh, we'll take the rest of the time, as I said, this is a very unusual time, in a sense, uh, in our preaching ministry, because... Uh, as I said last time, I don't recall a time where we've ever really uh, talked about the history of the church. And when I said, I mean the history of Christendom uh, through the years. And so this is the time to do it if we're ever going to do it with the letters uh, to the churches in Revelation because it really is uh, a good picture of a summary of the history of, of Christendom, professing Christendom. Really the stage was set, as I said, last week in history with the uh, accession of uh, Constantine his friendliness to the church, and then his successors even uh, making, giving land to the church, um, money, funding to the church. There was really a, a joining of the church and the state. Uh, it really set the stage, too, for a power struggle within the church. Uh, and we saw the uh, heresy of the Nicolaitans also arising, which was promoting the, the, the division of what was called the clergy and the laity. You know, the guys with the special titles and the special clothing, special powers, and then everybody else. No, n nowhere envisioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. He never had that intended. Um, as you know, he, he set up the church with uh, a plurality of leadership, men called elders, also called bishops, presbyters, overseers, those are the words all translating, talking about the same men who were not paid for their services. First Peter 5 says that plainly. Uh, and it really left the, the pattern the Lord Jesus had laid down to where there was one man uh, and he was the bishop. And uh, there was a rivalry between the bishops uh, in, in the Roman Empire and with the, with the accession of the church joined to the state, really the bishop of uh, a church in the, in the uh, Roman Empire became a powerful man. And finally, probably the, the uh, best demarcation line to when the Bishop of Rome 
became more powerful than the other was 590 AD with Gregory I. Because at that time they began to circulate a, a false document that they said had been uh, written in the time of Constantine promising all this land uh, to the church, particularly to the Church of Rome. And uh, it wasn't contested. And so the, the uh, church at Rome really become the dominant church, at least in the western part of the empire. And so now, uh, this a portion of history that's, that's, uh, that's typified here in the church of Thyatira, if you want dates, uh, roughly 600 to about 1500 uh, A.D. It's really the dark ages of the church. If you want exact dates, we go from 590, which is the accession of Gregory I to 1517, Luther's posting of his 95 Theses. Uh, the beginning of the Reformation. We'll talk about that next time we come into Revelation. Uh, really, after this time, the, the Roman Church began to dominate Christendom. It wasn't until this time, we're talking 600 years after Jesus, no, the popes aren't traced back all the way to Peter, I'm sorry. Uh, it really begins barely with, with Gregory I in 590 A.D., and uh, even today, let me, let me give you some numbers here just to give you an idea of, of uh, the, what we're talking about here, the breakdown of uh, percentage of the, of the Christendom. When I say the church now, when I, when I talk about this in these terms, I mean Christendom. Those who say they're Christians. Today in the world, uh, as far as religion goes, amazingly, 33%, one-third of the world's population say they're Christian. Okay? That's a lot. Population of the world is about 6 billion. So 2 billion people in the world say they're Christians. Now, you understand, they're not all really Christians. Right? Uh, there's an interesting quote here. Patrick Johnson's Operation of the World. Operation World, if you don't have this, you ought to get it. Talk to Matt. I think he's a good source for that. He was last time, I found out. They have an interesting comment after this... Uh, Population of the world, uh, 33% Christians. He says, only a small proportion of this number would actually be born-again Christians, but God alone knows how many. The Lamb's Book of Life would make fascinating reading. Wouldn't it? See whose name is really in there. Well, the rest of the world breaks down like this. 20%, uh, about a fifth, are Muslim. 18%, non-religious. 14% uh, are Hindu, 12% Buddhist or other Eastern uh, forms, particularly Chinese like Confucianism and Taoism, and 3% uh, are other. So the largest group as far as saying they belong to a religion is Christian, at one-third. Now, out of Christians, one-third of the uh, population, over half, 51%, are Catholic. That's one-sixth of the world's population. That's one billion people worldwide. 31% of the Christians uh, say they're Protestant, and of course most of those are counted for by the mega churches, not only in this country but other countries. Large, large uh, churches bent toward uh, entertainment, as we said last week, keeping uh, whoever comes happy in the church without being saved. Uh, Orthodox, which is the Eastern version of the Catholic Church, accounts for 13%, and then other 5%, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and so on, many many uh, false Christian religions account for 5%. So even today, uh, the Catholic Church, the Roman Church, accounts for one-sixth. That's incredible. One-sixth of the world's population. Now, how in the world can we make a parallel between uh, Jezebel at Thyatira and the Roman Church during the, during the Dark Ages? Well, uh, I'll read you some quotes and you'll see um, just how it fits. The, the, the Church at Rome... Uh, within a, a few decades of 590 and all the way for the next, uh, well, 900 years, 600 to 1500, uh, exercised power like no other power on earth, wealth beyond belief. Still today it's that way. And yet there was decadence even within the, the uh, popery that, that shocks most people. But worst of all, of course, is the departure from the gospel of Christ. Spiritual immorality, unfaithfulness to the gospel of Christ. 
Look back at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Really, the seeds were there all along within the church. There are two similar passages to churches in the New Testament where, where Paul laments the forsaking of the believers of the Lord Jesus and the gospel. There's one in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. He says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that's the Lord Jesus, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. The simplicity that is in Christ, uh, preserved for so long in the early church, very simply the gospel, you're a sinner, you deserve the judgment of God. It's that simple. You have nothing to merit heaven. But the good news is the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, became a man for you, and on the cross, he bore your sins. He paid the penalty in full so you don't have to face the judgment of God. And right now, by trusting Him, you can be saved. Not guess, not hope, not wonder through your whole life if you've done enough because you don't do anything. He did it all. And know right now that you have eternal life. Isn't that good? Huh? Good news. Praise God. The simplicity of Christ. Well, I spent uh, about uh, three hours last night in this book, The Catechism of the Catholic Church. I'm so happy that they, that they just uh, had a con uh, convention of the cardinals and the bishops just a few years ago. So we have a fresh version of the teachings of the Catholic Church. It's in print. You don't have to guess what they believe. This is not a reprint by Protestants. This is printed by the Catholic Church. And uh, I'll get to it in a minute. But I, last night, just for fun, I pretended I was a man that didn't know God. And I wanted to know how to know God. And so I picked up this book. And they got a, uh, an index in the back so I could look up my subjects. And I wanted to know how I could know I was right with God. I couldn't do it. And it scared the daylights out of me. And I began to get a sense of what it must be like to be a Catholic. And it's slavery. And I'll, and I'll, I'll tell you in, in details as we get into it in a minute. But it really began here, uh, back in 2 Corinthians, and then later, look in Galatians, the seeds were there for departing from the simplicity of Christ, turning it into a, a convoluted system in which the, the uh, followers are trapped, never, never knowing. And in fact, pretty certain that they're not going to go to heaven. And in fact, we can say clearly from Scripture, no. Because the only one who gets to heaven is trusting fully in the finished work of Jesus Christ and nothing else for the salvation of your soul. And that is not what... The Catholic Church teaches. But Galatians 3, 1 through 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? You see, very similar to 2 Corinthians. And of course, the whole book of Galatians is devoted to... Uh, counteracting the, the heresy that was creeping in that were saved by works and faith, some combination. Well, uh, just, to, just to paint the, the power and the wealth and the decadence of the uh, Roman church during this time, um, let me give you a few quotes here. First of all, the power, of course you know, if you know anything about history, you've, you've read about the kings of uh, Europe uh, really during all this time and even into the uh, 1600s. It was the Pope who appointed kings. Isn't that incredible? Can you imagine the leader of the Church of God is the one who decides who becomes a ruler? And in fact, if he doesn't like him, take, took him down. And in fact, um, there was one case where the Pope uh, dismissed a, uh, a king, king didn't like it and came with his army and the Pope defeated him with his own army. This was in uh, about 1160 A.D., right in the middle of this period we're talking about. 
Consider, for example, the arrogant imperialism of Pope Alexander III. Declaring that the power of the popes is superior to that of princes, Alexander excommunicated Frederick I, Holy Roman Emperor, King of Germany and Italy. Frederick didn't like it, so he uh, brought his forces to the Vatican and he was uh, beaten by the Pope's army. The chastened emperor came to Venice to beg forgiveness and absolution, promising to submit always to the Roman Church. That's just one example. There are countless examples uh, of, the, of, the, of the powers, particularly of Europe, being subservient to the Church at Rome. Uh, the power was exhibited in crowning kings, deposing kings, defeating kings, and of course, ultimately, the power was mis- misused in the Inquisitions, which didn't just start in the 1500s but really began about 800 A.D. Wealth, well, everybody knows, it's, it's, it's an open uh, secret that the Catholic Church is probably one of the richest entities in the world. <clears throat> Just one example. This one hit home to me because, as you know, uh, I took my boys and we visited the Knots, who were missionaries in Spain, in Huesca, Spain. Very strong uh, Catholic country. Catholicism in Europe is nothing like what it is here. Uh, you ain't seen nothing until you've gone to Europe and seen the cathedrals and the idols and the wealth. is where the, the church or the cathedral would be. And the, the doors would be open. Usually there wasn't anybody inside. And you'd open it up and the walls were just lined with silver and gold and precious jewels, idols of every kind. Every village. Imagine adding all that up. And, uh, and of course, the, the bigger the city and the bigger the, uh, the miracle that was supposed to take place, the uh, bigger the cathedral. And Zaragoza, we went to uh, in Spain, has a very famous uh, temple, cathedral, called Our Lady of the Pillar. Here's an idea of just the wealth. This is just one. Uh, cathedral in Spain, just one country. Uh, there are 10,000 ounces of silver in plate, part of it gilt, to adorn the two corners of the altar on great festivals, and abundance of rich ornaments for priests of inexpressible value, 84 chalices, 20 of pure gold, and 64 of silver, gilt on the inside of the cup, and the rich chalice which only the archbishop makes use of in his pontifical dress. All things are but trifles in comparison with the great custodia they make use of to carry the great hosts through the streets on the festival of Corpus Christi. Many of you remember when we were praying for the Knots years ago, uh, there's a huge image of Christ which they carry on. It's kind of like a litter, but it's a gigantic thing, and that's what he's talking about here. It's solid gold set with diamonds, emeralds, and other precious stones, and it weighs 500 pounds. Several goldsmiths have, have endeavored to value the piece, but nobody can set a sum on it. Uh, the worship of Mary is very big in Zaragoza. She has a different um, costume for every day of the year. Uh, just an example, the roses of diamonds and other precious stones she has to adorn her mantle are innumerable. She's dressed every day in the color of the church's festival and never uses twice the same mantle, which is the best stuff embroidered with gold. She now has uh, roses of precious stones every day for three years together. She has 365 necklaces of pearls and diamonds and six chains of gold set with diamonds which are put on her mantle in the great festivals of Christ. No estimate of the, of the wealth. And they have uh, vaults uh, that the public can go and, and see. It's all barred off. You can go downstairs and you just look in at these piles of gold and diamonds and, and silver. And this is just one, uh, one church out of all of Catholicism. Uh, the worldwide wealth of the Catholic Church is inestimable. Uh, the, 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 now think about how contrary to, to the Lord Jesus this is, who didn't have a place to lay his head. Uh, the power, you know, Peter took out his sword to chop off probably Malchus's head, but he missed it and only chopped off his ear. And Jesus told him, that's not the way of my kingdom. You know? The decadence, Jezebel committed immorality. Um, it's, it's a well-documented fact uh, that there were many, I'm sorry to say it, depraved popes during this time. Four were just, uh, it, it's hard to believe that these guys led a professing church 
Benedict the Ninth, John the Twenty Third, Alexander the Sixth, and I'll just read a section about John the Twelfth. They uh, they brought a synod. That's a a meeting of the leaders of the Catholic Church together because of the public outrage against his immorality. Um, to bring charges against him. Among the charges of the synod, this is in uh, 960 A.D. Among the charges of the synod against him were that he appeared constantly armed with sword, lance, helmet, and breastplate, that he neglected matins and vespers, those are uh, evening prayers, that he never signed himself with the sign of the cross, that he was fond of hunting, that he had made a boy of ten years a bishop, and ordained a bishop or deacon in a stable, that he had mutilated a priest, that he had set houses on fire, that he had committed homicide and adultery, that violated virgins and widows, high and low, lived with his father's mistress, converted the pontifical palace into a brothel, drank to the health of the devil, and invoked at the gambling table the help of Jupiter and Venus and other heathen demons. The emperor Otho would not believe these things until they were proven, and they were. So the bishops who were convened in the synod had no choice, and uh, they, um, well, they didn't excommunicate him, but they removed him from office. John the Twelfth. Before they were able to announce their uh, decision, he escaped from Rome, carrying with him whatever he could carry of the treasury of the Vatican. But after his departure, uh, pardon me, after the emperor left Otho and and the uh, synod was uh, dissolved, he was readmitted to the city and restored for a short time. But then he died an untimely death. He was killed in the act of adultery by the enraged husband of his lover. And that's uh, John the Twelfth, and um, I'm sorry to have to read something like that, really, about someone who professed uh, to be a leader of the Church of Christ, and there's worse than that, in, in the three volumes of Chaff's History of the Christian Church. They're well-established facts, they're well-known, but they're, pardon me, they're well-established, but they're little known. No wonder the Lord Jesus, in, in uh, typifying this period, shows Jezebel, the prophetess, but of all these things, really, the, the worst uh, crime in the, in, the, in the sight of the Lord is the spiritual immorality, the marrying of uh, the church and the world and the doctrines. So, as I said, I picked up my catechism, which, which you can uh, purchase. They're, they're fairly cheap. I got this when Jim McCarthy finished his book, The Gospel According to Rome. Um, I recommend that book highly if you've never read it. Uh, you'll need this, the catechism, because he refers to it constantly. He doesn't want to pick things out of the air, but he quotes the Catholics themselves about what they believe. And uh, so I, I sat down and I said, now what must I do to be saved? You know, I asked the question of the Philippian jailer. I want to know, what must I do to be saved? First, first thing you look under, I looked under salvation. Sounds good, right? And I went everywhere through this book under the subject of salvation, and never did I see such double talk. And you have to remember this now, and I'm not saying this in a, in a uh, Catholic bashing way. I'll tell you, my heart breaks when I read this thing. So imagine what it must be like not to ever know, you know, not to know where you stand with God from one moment to the next. But uh, it's, it's, we use the word salvation. You know, I know what I mean when I say I'm saved. You know what you mean, believer? You know what salvation is? Praise God. It's a definite thing. It's a known thing. I know I'm going to heaven. I'm not confident of myself. I boast in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ where he finished the work. That's salvation. Man, that's salvation. And really, you ought to use another word. You ought to call it probation or something else because you cannot know. Finally, you look in here long enough, you come to the seven sacraments, the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. And that accounts for a good portion of this book. It, by the way, this is authorized by the Pope. It's got John Paul's signature right in the front of it. So this is, it, there's no higher Catholic authority than this thing right here. The seven sacraments, really there are five. If you want to talk about salvation and being right with God, uh, you're going to have to experience five of them. The first one is baptism. And every time I say these now, you believers, particularly the ones that aren't familiar with the Catholic Church, you're going to think what you know the Bible means by it. Uh-uh. I see dear Danielle shaking her head over there. You've got to remember, these things are totally redefined in the Catholic Church. Baptism, well, if you're born in the Catholic Church, you get it as an infant. And 
uh, and you read it, and every time you read it, if you do one of these sacraments, it sounds like you're kind of kind of getting a little, maybe a little closer to heaven, you know. But it never says, at last, you're saved. It never says that. And so if you read it, I read it and I understand it now. It's very clear. What, what, what baptism does, it, it removes original sin, and it takes care of any sins up to that point. So if you're an infant, you go in, you're okay at that moment. Okay? But that, that's only the start. Really, you're kind of launched on the way, sort of toward heaven. Then later, you go through confirmation. And that, that sort of strengthens you a little bit more to do the right stuff. I'm paraphrasing here. Let me tell you, the key to all these things, here's the, here's the clincher. Every one of these sacraments which you need to even be thinking about salvation, you can only get through the Catholic Church. That's the key. You can't go anywhere else. So you're trapped. Then once you've been confirmed, you can begin taking Eucharist. That's, that's their, what we would call breaking of bread, but it's nothing like breaking of bread the way you know it. And uh, somehow that, that, that supposedly adds grace uh, to you, but it doesn't get you there either. And of course the problem is, uh, ever since you were baptized, you've been sinning. So how do you take care of all that stuff? Because the baptism, remember, only took care of the sins before that. Well, you've got the sacrament of penance, they call it. And really there are three uh, subsections to the sacrament of penance. There's, there's confession, there's penance itself, and there are indulgences. Those are the three subsections. Confession can only be done to a priest and to a Catholic priest. So if you're going to confess your sins, remember the verse in Titus, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Uh-uh. There, there are men now who are mediators, priests. And I remember, boy, it just yeah, it broke my heart as we walked around that huge cathedral in Zaragoza. And everywhere, oh, there must have been a couple of dozen. There were little booths. You know, with a little platform that you kneel on on the side, a little screen there. And, and I saw these dear people kneeling there with their eyes closed talking about all the things they've been done to this man inside. And the man, he might say, your sins be forgiven you or something like that, but then also accompanied with it, uh, they'd have to do penance. He would give them something to do to go out and make up for what they had done. And then finally, indulgences. I'll just read that one thing. Uh, I'd read so much in here. But here's a section on indulgences. What is an indulgence? An indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins. That's important because, you see, it's not all the punishment. Whose guilt has already been forgiven, which the faithful Christian who is duly disposed gains under certain prescribed conditions through the action of the church. Notice again, only through the church which the church, as the minister of redemption, listen to this, dispenses and applies with authority the treasury of the satisfactions of Christ and the saints. You got that? The church dispenses and applies with authority the treasury of the satisfactions of Christ and the saints. And as you read through this thing, you begin to see that the church, the Catholic church, capital C, that's the way it's in here, pictures itself as the caretaker of this huge thing they call the treasury which is the benefits, not only of what Jesus did on the cross, but the good work of the people they call saints, which is not everyday believers, as you know. You got that? It's like there's this huge repository of good stuff that somehow erases sins, but they're the only ones that can let it out. Okay? You can't go anywhere else to get it. And an indulgence is a way of getting some of that stuff out of that treasury. An indulgence is partial or plenary according as it removes either part or all of the temporal punishment due to sin. Indulgences may be applied to the living of the dead. Well, they go on and they, and they have incredible uh, convoluted language describing the various kinds of punishment for sin in order to allow for this concept of indulgences. The reason I picked indulgences was because it was during this time that we're talking about in the history of the Roman church that indulgences got so out of hand they were for sale. They sold indulgences for money so that you could remove maybe some of your sin or maybe some sins of somebody else by paying money to the Catholic Church. I'll give you an idea of one. This is uh, one of uh, many of kinds of Catholic Bibles. It's called the New American Bible. 
It's got the Neil Opstad in the front, so it's, a, it's an authorized version. But in the front, under indulgences, a partial indulgence is granted to the faithful who use sacred scripture for spiritual reading with the veneration due the word of God. A plenary indulgence, that's a, that's a bigger indulgence, is granted if the reading continues for at least one half hour. And it's got the little imprint on the bottom. Imagine that. And I want you to put yourself into the shoes of the, of the dear Catholic reader who picks this thing up now and reads that. And they're, they've got guilt of sin. And they want to do something about it. Now I'm told here that uh, if I use a uh, sacred scripture for spiritual reading, well, what's spiritual reading? How will I know if I'm doing spiritual reading or not? I won't. Worse than that, let's say I want a plenary indulgence. Well, it has, it has to be read with the veneration do the word of God. You really think you're going to come away after you've read this thing and, and convince yourself, I've given this word of God the veneration that it's due? You don't know. You never know. It's terrible. It's a departure from the simplicity of Christ and it becomes slavery. So you end up going through this cycle of, of sinning and confession and penance and doing... Hail Mary's on your rosary and, and if you're real serious going up the steps of St. Peter's in Rome on your knees uh, on and on and on never knowing you're never told just how much you need to do and how much is enough then I, I got to the, uh, the fifth uh, sacrament the anointing of the sick they call it now you may have heard of it as extreme unction it's the uh, a sacrament is given at, at uh, dying time to to a, a Catholic, and uh, I, I read. I, I thought, okay, now here it is. You know, it'll say because they have the effects of it in there. At last, they'll tell you that you're guaranteed to heaven, and it's kept open. And they say things like it unites you with the passion of Christ. Okay, it uh, prepares you for the final journey, and it contributes to the good of the people of God. But it says nothing that it guarantees you uh, entrance into heaven. No wonder. Uh, Jim finally found a, a, a straight quote. This is dogmatic theology for the laity. This is a certified Catholic publication. This is why. Because it doesn't. Nothing does. Nothing. People who have committed many sins, even if they're only venial sins, but who have never done penance by themselves and never tried to gain any indulgences, have a heavy load of punishment to atone for God. However, uh, God, however, is not only uh, merciful, but also supremely just. If this punishment is not atoned for on earth, then he demands that satisfaction be made after death down to the last farthing. For nothing unclean can enter into heaven. Exp here's a good one. Experience, too, can teach us, not the Bible, that most men at the time of their death are not good enough for heaven. Now, that's, at least they admit that. And that's exactly right. But the Bible teaches in, in Romans 3 there is none good, no, not one. It's not most, it's all. Are not good enough for heaven is still not bad enough for eternal damnation. Interesting. Reason alone, without the aid of revelation, leads us to expect that there must be some means of purifying the punishment due to sin after death. This concept is what we express in the word purgatory. Scripture and tradition both clearly teach that purgatory does exist. So there you go. All the way up to your dying day. What a, what a life. Never knowing. And if you get serious about it, you know, just uh, trying to do more and more. But no matter how much you do, you'll never, you'll, you'll never know if it's enough. And of course, we know plainly from the Bible it isn't. It doesn't even help. Doing good works doesn't erase sin. Only the blood of Jesus Christ removes all sin. Well, there it is. And I'll tell you, it's no wonder... Um, it's a serious thing to the Lord Jesus. I'm not Catholic bashing, as I said. In fact, uh, my heart really goes out to anyone trapped in the system. Let me just read uh, the end of John Paul's introduction to this catechism. If you've read enough uh, Christian books, commentaries, or, or devotionals, or whatever, you know often the author will, will uh, have in his preface, he'll close with a prayer that, that God will use this you know, to edify his believers. Here's, here's uh, John Paul's the next to last paragraph in his introduction, and it's a prayer. At the conclusion of this document, presenting the Catechism of the Catholic Church, I beseech the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of the Incarnate Word and Mother of the Church, to support with her powerful intercession 
the catechetical work of the entire church on every level. At this time, when she is called to a new effort of evangelization. There's no mention of Jesus in this prayer. May the light of the true faith free humanity from the ignorance and slavery. Isn't that incredible? Of sin in order to lead it to the only freedom worthy of the name. From slavery to slavery. And it's no wonder the Lord Jesus is so concerned about um, this false teaching. One-sixth of the world's population who are led away from Christ, away from salvation in the name of Christ. Well, the application is clear. I mean, uh, it's no different today. And I'm not just talking about the Catholic Church. Jesus said to the church at Thyatira, to the, to the faithful believers, He said, hold fast. Boy, does that ever apply any more than today. Not just with the, the false gospel of the, of the Catholic Church that's on one side. On the other side is the growing uh, entertainment centers of the Protestant megachurches that are designed to keep the unsaved happy in church. Talking about Jesus, really, in, in a way, it's worse. Because uh, they give lip service to right doctrine. But they clearly teach that uh, Jesus is never intended to cramp your lifestyle. You know, the Jesus that uh, is taught in, the, in most of the churches today is a Jesus who wants you comfortable in whatever you want to do in life. He's just there to help you out. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. So, brothers and sisters, if ever there was a time to hold fast as his uh, coming approaches, that's what he says, hold fast till I come. It's now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that your word is so clear that the work is done once and for all. We can think of just one verse, one phrase that you said. He who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but has passed from death to life. Think of 2 Corinthians. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you by your work, gained eternal salvation. You didn't do a partial work. You didn't do something we had to add to. All we could do was the sinning, Lord. You did all the saving. And Lord, we who are earthen vessels and have this gospel in us, Lord, as we've heard this morning about those who are enslaved in this system, not just Catholicism, any other system that uses the name of Jesus but doesn't give assurance of salvation, Lord, Give us contacts this week, this month, this year. Lead us to those who are hungry, who are desperate for water, like the woman at the well, that we might give them the gospel of Christ, that they might know they're saved. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.